I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, what's in the sweet bowl this time? Well, I've got another exciting selection, international selection. I've got some Effie Puffs um, marshmallow biscuit with cocoa sprinkles, which have come all the way from Romania. And uh, I'm pleased to say that on the on the vast list of ingredients on the back, it says contains anti-caking agent, brackets, talc, close brackets. <laughs> I don't know. So, so in this hot weather, I can at least use them to, to, to soak up perspiration, if nothing else. Um, and I've also got some classic um, rosy apple boiled sweets, which I'm pleased to say on the back of that, you can hear them rustling now, it says, warning, colours may have an adverse effect on activity and attention in children. Whether it's speaking about colours in general or the colours in these sweets, I'm not sure. But as a parent, I'm sure you'd agree that uh, colours can have an adverse effect on children. Um, so that's what I've got. And I've also got Mandy. Andy's mentioned, or indeed Mandy, Andy has mentioned the uh, the pineapple Jaffa cakes. But I did manage to find some delicious Jaffa. They're called Hello, and it, they've got cherry-flavoured filling. They're not actual Jaffa cakes. They're Polish Jaffa cakes. Um, so I'm looking forward to trying the... Um, it says, actually, what it says is delicious cookies with an cherry-flavoured filling. Work for the sub-editor there at uh, Hello, Delicious Jaffa. <laughs> it's nice to hear of a use for talc being found, because talc seems to have disappeared, really, as a product, doesn't it? Well, it, well I know, and obviously, obviously because most of it's being used as an anti-caking agent in Romania. So it's kept the talc mines of the Central and Eastern Europe alive and well, which is good to know. It has, yeah, because the only other thing that really talc gets used for is a gymnast to put their hands in it, don't they, before swinging around on some bars. Oh, and Northern Soul people, the, the proper people who do the spinning around, the guys who wear the, the singlets and the baggy pants, do they put talc on the floor when they're doing the, 
the backflips and stuff. How do you get white powder like that into a nightclub? Yeah, well, quite easily, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you probably buy it off. Probably buy it off the bouncers. That's the, that's the, they're the only the Northern Soul people. The only people who complain that their talc was laced with cocaine. Um, Harry, how are the last days of lockdown, or for now anyway, going for you? Any culture devoured? Well, I, yeah, I've had a few. I've, I've read uh, recently Mike Amos, the uh, the former chairman of the Northern League, great um, northeast sports writer. He's just his autobiography's just come out, and I was pleased to see in it, Dan, that he mentions that he sang backing vocals on Hartlepool United's "Who Put Sugar in My Tea," which you chose a few podcasts ago, and he says that it was a particularly popular. It sold a lot of copies because Ed Stewpot Stewart used to play it on Radio One Junior Choice. So there you are. So, you know, you can't, you can't get much more cultural than that. <laughs> Andy, any lockdown developments there? How are the two Neville Southalls getting on? Uh, well, they're, they're doing fine. Neville Southall himself did respond again to something of ours on Twitter. We've been linking to various archive articles from WSC in the build-up to the 400th issue. And we put up a piece um, about his Twitter. Uh, his, we, we had an article about his, his Twitter account uh, a couple of years ago. We put up a, a, a link to it with an illustration of him where his head, as, as it's art, his head is quite big relative to his body, and he tweeted, size of my head there. So we did think about <laughs> sending a picture of my two Neville Southwood Corinthian figures to him, but of course, they have enormously outsized heads as well, so which wouldn't help. It might seem like we were trolling him, as the kids say. Um, other than that, um, I'm seeing plenty of nature. I keep seeing foxes. I saw one the other night carrying what looked like a carton of milk in its mouth, one of those kind of half cartons. So possibly been to the late night garage, in which case understands how to operate those sliding trays, which a lot of people don't. Um, also, last night, I heard a couple of foxes do what foxes do of an evening. Um, sounded very close to me, almost like they're on my balcony. I didn't look outside, though, because I could already hear what they were doing, so I didn't particularly want to see it, you know. Um, one of the wildlife update... Um, my, my block last year, my block of flats had problems with pharaoh ants, which are these kind of super ants, slightly bigger than the normal ants. And they seem to be back. And last year, we used to get these regular visits to our block from Rent-A-Kill when there was a big infestation. I, I didn't have a big, big problem with them at the time. They came around to every flat every week. And one of the rent kill guys at the time said, we've been coming around to these flats so often, we should invite you all to our Christmas party. So I'd imagine a rent kill Christmas party probably involved leaving lots of small pieces of cake around the corners of a room. You know, by the skirting board near the cracks in the wall. I'm still frequently enjoying thinking about what a great name Reg Leather is. What's your favourite non-league name at the moment, Andy? Well, uh, I've been looking around a bit with this, and partly my, my theory that the reason non-league players seem to have such great names is because you, you tend to only hear of them, or used to, in relation to FA Cup games. So we're not used to hearing the name regularly, so you don't get used to it um, in the way that you would with, say, for example, George Best, which is a fantastic name for a star player, which we mentioned in the last podcast. Another player who played at Hayes, not with Reg Leather, but in the 1950s, and um, also was better known as a centre-forward with Woking, was called Dickie Winch which sounds like a musical comedian. He played for Woking in the FA Amateur Cup final in 1958. And I found that the programme online, where it says of Dickie that, um, but for an injury earlier in his career, which involved him recuperating in Switzerland for six months, which sounds pretty good, he could have been, quote, the Andy Wilson of today. Um, so <laughs> Andy Wilson being, I had to look him up as well, the Scottish striker of the 1920s, was obviously a big name in, in Woking in 1958. But also the best bit next to, uh, this is, he, he played for Woking the amateur cup final against Ilford, 1958. Next to him in the programme notes is his teammate, Billy Butler, who was described as having a vivacious wife, <laughs> which is quite, an, quite a thing to, uh, an um, ambition for anyone. A vivacious wife called Joan, who is, quote, an expert dancer. 
So I don't know if there's a whole other set of meanings there of, of, of things that may have been going on in Woking in 1958, but we'll probably never know. But if you if you know anything of Dickie Winch or indeed Billy Butler and and Joan, um, then you know let us know. <laughs> Harry, any non-league names pleasing you in this strange old time? Well, yeah, well, I often think of um, there was a, there was a player at uh, Sunderland RCA called Dimitri Limbo. And fittingly, the only time that I was there when he was he was on the subs bench, but he was a sub not used. So therefore, rather uh-huh. living up to his name, I felt. Yeah. Um, but my particular favourite is there was a, a defender for Wrighton a few years ago who was called Romario Castrati, which I, I just don't know. It was very disappointing to find that there was no local paper that chose Castrati hits a high note as their headline. I wonder if he managed to find a vivacious wife. I think the vivacious wife thing is there was a, a Northern League club a few years ago and one of the, the centre forwards. Um, a man on the touchline always used to shout out, how's your wife? At him in a, in a, a sort of yeah. slightly sinister manner. <laughs> Which I never, really, I never really found out what it meant. And I didn't really like to inquire. I've enjoyed some great late night YouTube viewing and such are algorithms, but also emailing you two for suggestions. I watched a Swindon Town documentary based in the 1992-93 promotion season, which was a remarkably... Almost beautiful documentary to watch, unlike a lot of the football ones that I watch. But the main thing I found out was that Mickey Hazard and Brian Marwood, who were in that squad, were both born on the same day, the 5th of February, 1960, both on Wearside, which must be the only occurrence of this ever happening and playing in the same midfield. So that was exciting enough as I hit 3am. And then who should appear but former podcast star John Trollope as manager of the Apprentice Players having a right go at them um, and saying that it was worse than that in the old days when he would have given them a good old clip around the ear. So just absolutely brilliant to see Trollope in action. And then I went on to watch a documentary about Doncaster Rovers in 1998, which I know you've seen, Harry, because you recommended it. Yes, they, they think it's all Rovers. The fantastically titled, they think it's all Rovers. I particularly enjoyed the fact that early on in it, for, for no apparent reason, a small boy dressed as a vampire is interviewed. And sort of there's a pitch invasion. He says, it's every week, is this every week? But he's dressed, he's dressed as a vampire. I don't know quite why. With, got, with goalkeeper gloves on as well. <laughs> it's a vampire keeper. It's like a, maybe he's a character from a comic. <laughs> the vampire keeper. Did you also watch Chester City, an American dream? I still haven't. That's that's the treat I've kept behind for that, next that's time. That's kind of extraordinary because that's when um, Terry Smith, the gridiron coach, took over as manager. He, he was also the owner of the club and he took over as manager. And it's really bizarre because I do watch quite a lot of... Um, American football documentaries and, and American football coaches, their, their pre-match team talks are normally a kind of, you know, warrior, they're yelling about patriotism and brotherhood and war and with lots of swearing. But but Terry Smith's pre-match team talks are, are, are incredibly quiet and and sort of meandering. And indeed, he is a man, he's a sort of, he's incredibly dull and colourless. Like, a, I don't know, he makes some... Um, he makes Dawn Howe look like Liberace, I think. <laughs> I also enjoyed a documentary from 82-83 on Tranmere Rovers, which again was really beautifully shot. Very, very bleak, but enjoyably bleak in my 2am lockdown state, I have to say, when they were sponsored by 
a nightclub, but the nightclub didn't bother to pay them, but they had to keep the name of the nightclub on the shirts anyway because they couldn't afford any new shirts. It was just one illustration of how difficult things were at Prenton Park. Because Tranmere at one point, around that time, had an American owner called Bruce Osterman, who's a lawyer from New York who come over occasionally. His thing when he came over was he liked to go and goal in training sessions. That's the main thing I remember about him. I think that's pretty much all he contributed. I hope he was dressed as a vampire. <laughs> I was wondering, Andy, if you'd watched any of the football with no crowds. I did try but turned off after about five minutes one reason I turned off so quickly was because I went on the channel wet with no fake noise so all I could hear was Martin Tyler breathing really strangely heavily into the microphone which was quite disturbing yeah I've seen uh, bits of uh, both of Everson's games so far um, I, I really don't like the the, the crowd sound effects I wonder what kind of effect it, the lack of a home crowd is having on teams who go behind in a game and we saw that with, perhaps with Cheltenham in the League 2 playoffs they had a two goal lead from the first leg against Northampton lost 3-0 at home but I wonder once they let in the first goal normally that kind of situation a home crowd might have got behind them a bit but as it was obviously they were fairly flat and the, the other two goals they conceded were both from bad defensive mistakes so I suppose you, the same you could say of Northampton in the first leg um, but I'd, I'd, I'd Instead of crowd noise, I, I, I think I'd prefer something like relaxing lounge music, one of those e- old easy listening compilations playing like uh, with tunes like Girl in the Sports Car or The Riviera Affair, just with captions coming up for the players when they score. But um, otherwise, no, I, I, I can't really be doing it. I'm still watching old highlights of shows on YouTube. Um, I saw an, uh, an Ipswich v Spurs game from 1969 featuring a Spurs player I'd never heard of before, which for an absolute 1969-70 um, head like myself was 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 amazing it was a uh, Roy Walcott which turned out to be his only game for Spurs though he did play a few more games for Gillingham later but there can't be many players in the days when very few games were televised many players his only league game for a club happened to be on TV and Harry did you take in any of the spectacle of Middlesbrough's home defeat to Swansea to in, enjoy the I, I didn't know but I, I, I enjoyed the uh, I, I felt you know talking about the sort of sound effects that they should have the, the comments on Twitter from Middlesbrough fans were the sort of thing that would have been shouted out. And my particular favourite was it's so bad it the seats have walked out. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, as ever, the When Saturday Comes Letters pages are tremendously enjoyable, this time in issue 400. Which letters did you particularly enjoy? Uh, well, as I mentioned, as I hinted on the last podcast, the letter section the issue, I was going to re- uh, refer to a connection between East Ham United and an indie band. And it's a letter from Steve Broughton who says, in the 1990s, East Ham United, who disappeared uh, around that time, were run by one person, Reuben Gain, whose son, Tim, formed the band Stereolab and for a while Stereolab were East Ham United's uh, shirt sponsors although I don't think they ever managed to write any of the uh, a song about them or at least if they did it's it buried fairly deep in a in a Stereolab lyric I think um, on the topic of football in prison which we had an article about recently uh, somebody wrote in a John Connell wrote in to say that he once played uh, football for Sussex University and they occasionally played friendlies against uh, Lewis Prison um, 
which was um, a Category B medium security jail. So they only had home games. Um, and uh, they had a lot, used to get large crowds who, as one, would volunteer to go and get the ball whenever it's kicked over the wall. And he says <laughs> that we were long-haired students and they were indistinguishable buzz-cut prisoners and warders. We only discovered which was which by fouling them when there were groans from the crowd for a prisoner but cheers for a warder. Um, and the other one was um, recently somebody, somebody brought in to say that during lockdown, they completed a partly finished crossword they'd found in the Boys Book of Soccer for 1949. So 71 years to complete a, a crossword. Can, ever, can any of our readers beat that? He's asked. I'm hoping somebody will write in for the next issue and confirm that, yes, indeed, they can beat that, but we'll see. And Harry, which letters caught your eye? Well, I like there was a, there was one about um, commentators' phrases that they no longer have to use, and pointing out that how they used to always say who was playing in which kit. They used to say Newcastle United playing in the striped shirts, which they never bother to do now. And what other phrases there were? Because I do remember that they often they always used to say United quick kicking from left to right, didn't they? Which they don't do anymore. So it's quite. So I did think that I thought that was a good letter. And then there was a letter about um, fans who were unlucky charms. Um, which I do remember when I was in the supporters club in London um, and we went to away games, you know, there were certain people who turned up and everyone used to groan, here comes Jonah, you know, because they were, they never saw, they never saw any Borough win. And I did actually have, I had a season in, in 2015-16 when I went to, I think I went to over, I think I went to 37 games that season and I never saw a nil-nil draw. And it did. It did become like quite wearing towards the end. You know, if a goal didn't go on, go in early, I got really nervous as, as the game wore on. So yes, yeah, so I'd like that letter. And then there was a good letter about um, Clive White, the World Cup referee, refereeing a Sunday league game in Hillingdon um, for a five pound match fee um, in the early eighties, which I liked as well. It's good to good to think because Pat Partridge as well up here. He he often used to to go and referee in the Red Cup Sunday League if you had a weekend off. Well, I remember that, that it's not a letter about it in this issue, but somebody I knew who played in the Sunday League team and they had to get a replacement referee um, for their game because the referee couldn't make and they phoned around whoever it was, the local FA, and the replacement referee was Gerald Sinstad, <laughs> the TV commentator. Though he didn't, I don't think he commented as he was going along, which is a shame. Really, but yeah, Another excellent decision there by the, by the match official. <laughs> He's having he's having a great game. And Andy, you received an interesting letter featuring a celebrity when Saturday comes. Yes, uh, a letter from a de- an email from Dennis Locorni, uh, who sent us a photo of Robert Smith as a cure reading WSC on a, a tour bus in the early nineties. Uh, Robert Smith was a subscriber to when Saturday comes then, um, though we never had any any uh, contact with him. Um, he's a QPR fan, as far as I know. Um, so maybe we should send him one of our four hundredth issue T-shirts um, if we've got an XXL. Oh, shouldn't say that, perhaps. An XL, maybe. <laughs> oh, on the subject of music as well, I should just quickly add um, a Bee Gees clarification, possibly the first we've had on the podcast. Um, <laughs> that, well, Harry was indeed right that they were born in the Isle of Man. I thought they were born in Greater Manchester and moved to the Isle of Man, but they were indeed, as Harry said, born on the Isle of Man and then moved to Manchester. And not, not to Ashton Underline. Not to Ashton Underline, as I'd also wrongly said. I don't know what was wrong with me that day. <laughs> Something, something I ate or something. I don't know. But they lived in Chalton Cum Hardy, which is also the place where Quentin Crisp died rather incongruously, having lived in New York for 20 years. He actually expired, and I'm sure to his mortification, or no, no pun intended, his mortification, 
Uh, he actually expired in Chalton Cum Hardy. No offence to anybody who lives in Chalton Cum Hardy, but it's, I don't think it's where he would have wanted to, to have passed on. Anyway, that's the end of the Bee Gees clarification. We can continue <laughs> with our normal programming. No, I'm just, I'm just stunned that I was correct. I was that, I, that I was correct, and Andy was wrong. That's the first time that's ever happened in all the years we've known each other. Is it a leap year? <laughs> it must be something like that. <laughs> it, it's some kind of side effect of the of the pandemic, I think. I think that might be one. That might be one of the things. Like you lose your taste, you lose yes. your sense of smell. You forget facts about about the Bee Gees. Issue 400 is out now. It's currently on its way to subscribers. If you haven't received it yet, there are delays in the postal system at the minute, of course. Andy, how does it feel to have reached that number and what's in the magazine this time? Uh, well, I, I suppose the main, my main thought is that I'm grateful to not have had to get a, get a proper job for most of my working life, really. I mean, that's not to say that this isn't stressful. Obviously, it's plenty of stress, but I'd, I would have to concede that it's not, it's not been a, what you could call a regular job. Um, so to 400th issue, so we, as we've tended to do with our landmark issues, we've got a few articles looking back at various aspects of football culture and how they've changed since we started. So we've got um, Taylor Parks on how footballers used to be older than him and now he's older than them and they seem to be like a different species of, sort of super being now. They used to be players who seem like ordinary people, a few of them, who seem like ordinary people who'd somehow got themselves as a career as a footballer, but now that's hardly ever the case. And um, we've got David Stubbs on... Uh, crossovers between football and music how football used to be fairly sort of unhip in indie music circles until maybe the 90s um david did a feature on wc and melody maker in uh, august 87 which is the first time we've been written about in the music press and then he mentions how football fan culture went overground in the 90s through uh, frank skinner and david blackface and so on and and um, how yeah we tried to keep we tried to keep a bit of distance between ourselves and the the sort of lad culture stuff, really, but there obviously was some overlap between our readership and the people who followed that show. Um, we've also got um, Cameron Carter on changes in the way that football has been covered on TV since the 80s and how, um, of course, there's a lot more pundits now and there's a lot more um, airtime has to be filled. Now the presenter's role has become more self-conscious. He describes Des Lynham as radiating the easy charm of a country doctor with a very small workload. Um, there's also, Dan, uh, your article about how uh, it's a sort of a snapshot of where football was in, in 1986 uh, when WSC started. Yeah, every day I stare at a postcard of LS Lowry's going to the match. It can't, of course, be the real LS Lowry's going to the match because the PFA bought it for millions of pounds quite a while ago. And I was looking, thinking back to the start of when Saturday comes in 86, which is always a big year in, in Borough fans' minds as the year when the club went into liquidation. And I came to the conclusion that Lowry had it a bit easy getting to paint that wonderful era in football of the chimney backdrop, the terraces, the crowds all going happily as one. And I reimagined what Larry would have seen if he'd gone to a game in 86, good and bad, what he would have painted. And and just to talk about the, the treatment that fans were going through when, when you started, when Saturday comes. Yeah. Uh, oh, and we've also got a feature on zines. Um, we brought back our big zine list, which we, we published for years. We brought it back for one issue, looking at the current zine, some of which are, are obviously been around for a long time, like City Gent, Bradford City, one which is older than WSC. And, and we, we published, we've done a feature on current zines and we've done a, we reprint. Uh, reprinted uh we've done a, a big zine list as well were you surprised to see how many modern fanzines there are when you went when you compiled the list well, we'd we'd heard from a few people over over recent years there are quite a few people who started to do them kind of i, I guess it's a whole generation younger now people maybe their early 20s are kind of second 
sort of second wave of of kind of you know kind of fan activists really so we kind of knew there were quite a few around and there are obviously some older ones that have been going for a long time but yeah once we started to look around there were more than than i would have anticipated obviously a lot of the old print zines kind of moved online and became more like uh, message boards and blogs and stuff so it, it, it is good to see that there's certainly been a bit of a revival of it in the last few years harry what's your column about this time well it's uh, it's shocked me to find that it's 25 years since middlesbrough left Ayrson park for the for the riverside so actually, you know, any fan under the age of 30 hasn't actually watched Middlesbrough play anywhere else except the Riverside. But it is a bit of a, a kind of uh, when Saturday comes era phenomenon because the, the first club for, I think, 33 years to move to a, to a new stadium was uh, Scunthorpe in 1988 when they moved to Glanford Park. So um, there was a 30, I think, I think uh, South End had moved to Roots Hall in 1955. So it was a, a massive gap between clubs moving into new grounds. And then after, from sort of 1988 onwards, you know, more and more clubs have moved. Um, so it's a bit about that and about how difficult it is to kind of create, you know, turn one of these new stadiums actually into a home and the effect that it has on the fans themselves where whole, you know, a lifetime of routines of going to a ground have to be changed. Um, pubs that, you know, pubs that were once a fixture of fans' lives that are now abandoned like the, you know, like the yellow rose just behind Ayrson Park, you know. So it's really about that, you know, and about that sort of that massive change that's happened over the past sort of uh, 30 years. You make a brilliant point. There's something of a, a working class thing almost, because if it was a middle class movement, they would have restored turnstiles and brought out all the old fixtures and fittings in a new way. Yeah, I would have thought that would have been really nice, wouldn't it? If, they, if someone had bought Ayrson Park and actually gone, actually what we're going to do is instead of moving to a new ground, we're going to we're going to turn it back to its 1920s splendour. <laughs> you know, we've gone around reclamation yards. We found, it, we found a turnstile in a farmer's field in Devon and we're going down to collect it. In the Tramia Rover's brilliant photo feature, one of the details is of an old man and his walking stick, which uh, read since is of Charlie Lindsay, 72 years old, who invaded the pitch in 1979 in a game against Bournemouth and threatened the Bournemouth <laughs> goalkeeper with his walking stick, which carries on really nicely from our discussion last time of octogenarian hooligans and things is that a story either of you had come across before i'd, I'd heard of it yeah that i had i don't recall seeing the, the mural but i certainly knew the story i think there were the photographs at the time i don't know if he actually hit the player did he hit him on his backside with his walking stick i think he may have done certainly the mural makes it look like he did and look out also for a special podcast about issue 400 looking back at when saturday comes over the years make sure you never miss an issue of when saturday comes by subscribing today Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Bournemouth, Gasworks, Athletic FC, Stanchions... Steve Sedgley, and it's landed on the European Championships. An incredible coincidence, really, when you think that Euro 2020 would have been nearing the knockout phase now. Andy, a completely impromptu question then has come to mind. Can you name any players who appeared at one Euros and no other tournament? 
Well, I can do better than that. I can name a player who never actually played at Euros, but nearly came under the sub. Ronnie Martins, under that player who's in Belgium's Euro 80 squad. Belgium got to the final against West Germany. Strangely, he'd never been capped. And he was warming up to come on as a sub um, in extra time when Germany scored the what turned out to be the winning goal. And he never got capped for Belgium, even though, weirdly, even though he was later top scorer in the Belgium League a few years later, he never got another international cap. So he went from making his debt, potentially making it, he's about three minutes away from, or a few minutes away from making his debut in an international final, which surely no other player has done. He went from that to not playing internationally at all. Quite a, a poignant uh, uh, aspect of his career. Um, 1984, um, Jordão, Portugal striker, put them 2-1 up. He scored both their goals in extra time with only six minutes left against France. And when France ended up winning 3-2, that's Portugal's first appearance at a major final since 1966. And he didn't play in another final. So he died last year, apparently having been a, a painter after he retired. Um, there's a Denmark team that won the Euros in 92, but they didn't qualify for the World Cup either side of that. So they get a few players who never played another tournament, including Torben Pechnik, who Liverpool fans probably have mixed memories of. He's probably in one of the weaker teams of recent decades. And John Jensen, of course, was whose arrival at Arsenal on the transfer was one of the things that led to George Graham um, uh, being sacked over taking money from an agent. Um, there's also another poignant story. Czech goalkeeper at Euro 96, Peter Kuba. Um, it was a golden goal scored by Oliver Bieroff, a German, in the final. So the game ended fairly quickly after into extra time. Kuba sort of palmed the ball into his own net. He didn't cope with it very well. The head and his career never really recovered from that. He'd been irregular with Sparta Prague for a few years before the tournament. He was only 27. He moved to Deportivo La Coruña after the final. Only played four games for them. Went on loan to Kaiserslautern for a year where he didn't play at all. Went back to Coruña for another couple of years. Only played twice. Then went back to Czech Republic and again only played another 20 or so league games in the rest of his career. So he, he's he, it, possibly that moment, whether it damaged his confidence, but it was his, the biggest game he was going to play in and possibly had a... a negative long-term effects on him. The other one was uh, Latvia's only appearance in the finals in 2004. Um, the, the striker called Maris Verpakovskis, uh, we played for Dima Kiev at the time, scored their only goal in defeat against the Czechs. And uh, our uh, writer who's uh, covered that game is the uh, Anglo-Latvian, who said that um, the, the game against Holland took place in Midsummer, which in Latvia is the, the day it's a big celebration. Latvia, loads of people go out to the countryside, so loads of Latvian fans at the game were in these kind of leaf clusters on their heads and carrying like small bushes with them because that was the thing that, that Latvians associate that day with the, the countryside. The Latvian Prime Minister offered to dye his hair green if they qualified for the knockout stage. So it could have been suspect he may have been confident that he wouldn't have had to follow through with that and indeed he was right he didn't have to. Harry what about players who look absolutely brilliant in the shop window of the Euros but just aren't really? Well, before I answer that, another player who only played in the Euros and actually won, uh, got a winner's medal, was Bernd Schuster of, of Germany in 1980 um, because he was a sort of a controversial figure, as we uh, probably know. Um, and he was only 20 and actually had a brilliant tournament, um, but then fell out with just about everyone, not just in German football, in world football and probably everywhere else as well. Um Including, I mean, he was he was in the team with Hansi Muller, and he didn't go. Hansi Muller had a party, and Bernd Schuster was the only player from the team who didn't go to it. And when asked why, he said, "I can't stand Hansi Muller," was his answer. <laughs> um, and then he fell out with the manager Jupp Derval as well, who he said uh, was a drunkard, and generally carried on like that. So that was so, but he that was the only tournament that he ever played in, extraordinarily, because he played most of his career in Spain. And I think when there was a survey of Spanish journalists in the 
1990s, they named him as the greatest foreign player ever to play in La Liga ahead of um, Johan Cruyff and Alfredo de Stefano. So yeah, so that's so that's so that's another player who only featured in what in that tournament. I'm pretty sure anyway. Unless Andy's going to prove me wrong. No, no, I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> after the Bee Gees, I dare tread on your Schuster connected toes. My though. Schuster facts. I also, I was just looking up about him actually in Uli Hesse's book Tour, published by When Saturday Comes. Um, and he says that when he signed for Bayer Leverkusen, they thought they signed him. He was getting on a bit then, and they thought he might have mellowed. But that he arrived in Leverkusen with five fighting dogs, ten bodyguards, and fifteen horses. <laughs> <laughs> Seemed quite good. Anyway, what was your question, Dan? <laughs> I mean, it was about signings, wasn't it? Yes, Andy mentioned John Jensen, yeah, who, who and the the slightly controversial signing by Arsenal. But I, I remember that Jensen in the final of uh, of the year, as he scored that absolute screaming goal, the first goal, he, he sort of struck it from outside the penalty box. And so when Arsenal signed him, you thought, oh, he's going to be doing that. You know, he's going to do that six or seven times a season. In actual fact, I think in over ninety games, he only scored once. Um, and that was in the penalty, his penultimate game for Arsenal, um, which was a really good goal, actually, a kind of curling shot against QPR. Um, so a few others. Um, and the people would, of course, think of Karol Poborski. Um, these, these, it always kind of reminded me of a giant anteater. I don't know why. <laughs> um, for the Czech team in '96, scored a fantastic goal again against um, Portugal, a kind of scooped shot over the goalkeeper. Um, he signed for Man United, was pretty much a disaster there. Um, United also signed from that tournament. One of the few Dutch players who had a decent tournament in '96 was Jordi Cruyff, who um, who scored a goal against Switzerland at Villa Park, I think, which turned out to be his only international goal. Man United signed him off the back of that again. Didn't do too well. Uh, the, from the Czech, from that Czech team, you think that Man United signed uh, Karol Poborski. From that Czech team, Liverpool signed Patrick Berger, who, who did pretty well. Um, but then also there was Pavel Nedved in that team. Well, I think after Juventus signed him, he won the Ballon d'Or. So could have done better than Poborski, obviously. Also in 1996, Florian Radishayu as well was, uh, I think he scored Romania's only goal in the tournament and was signed by West Ham. Uh, again, not much of a success. Um, and then uh, probably Andre Arshavin, bit of a probably a mixed bag with him, really. Um, worth mentioning him though, because of course he did have a degree in fashion design and his own line of ladies wear. Andy, I've been watching a few repeats of Euro '96 game, seen as it was mentioned there, and I think I'm definitely guilty of misremembering it as a glorious time because uh, I only really have just have chosen to remember Gaza's goal against Scotland and the demolition of the Netherlands. Is that right? What, was it as good as I previously thought it was? I just saw a lot of empty seats as well looking at some of the games. Yeah, it was certainly a very mixed tournament. There was a lot of confusion with the ticketing, I think, which led to lower crowds than perhaps there should have been. I went to some games. I went to games at Anfield and at Newcastle, actually. And um, England v Holland, I think I watched at Harry's. I think well, I think I was in the Thumbs. You did. I think we missed some of the goals because I came and met you and we got in the ta- we got in a taxi and the, it was the, the taxi driver had it, had it on the radio, had the commentary on the radio. Right. And it was just like the goals kept going in. It was just like, it just seemed incredible. There was this whole, the FA made, who would think it? The FA made a complete cock up with the ticketing and made it sound, made it so difficult to get tickets that no one, no one even tried, it seemed to me. And I did go, I mean, I think the lowest attendance was St. James's Park. Bulgaria against Romania when there was, there was fewer than 20,000 at that game. Oh yeah, I was um, that, we, did you go to that? 
Uh, we um, we might have we, gone to we the. We went to that. Oh, that, that. That would be it then. Yeah, I'd, <laughs> it could be that. It could be that. We could have gone to. There was a good game. There was France against Bulgaria as well. I mean, one of the nice things was that the teams stayed in slightly unusual places, and the the French national team stayed in a village called Cholliford, just on the north town, at a hotel that's sadly just gone bust during the lockdown. Um, and they used to train. They trained at Hayden Bridge High School, the local comprehensive school. And so the coach actually used to drive past my house on the way to training every day. So you could, I could sort of stand in my garden and wave at Zinedine Zidane. And then a friend of mine was a teacher at the high school. So it's obviously it was, it was in the summer holidays. So he said, oh, if you want to come along and watch them train, you know, we can come along. And there was, when I got there, I remember that there was a guy standing and he was surrounded by journalists from all nationalities who were kind of asking him questions. And I could hear him sort of saying something about how um, Christophe uh, Dugarry, he, he, had a, he thought that he had a calf strain and all that. And I was looking at this guy and I thought, he seems familiar from somewhere. And then I realised he was actually the school caretaker. <laughs> he, he, he was helping so he was helping set up the training cones and stuff but, but a lot of foreign press seemed to have thought that he, they obviously thought he was something to do with the French team and he was really enjoying being the centre of attention so yeah so there's good things come out of it yes indeed but um, and because also the Bulgarian team bizarrely stayed at Ravenscar which is a, a sort of strange place on the on a cliff between Whitby and Scarborough and they stayed at the hotel there which looks like the set it looks like the set from an Alfred Hitchcock film and they checked out 12 days early uh, complaining of isolation and lack of girls <laughs> Time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you chosen this time? Well, I'm back to Belgium again, the gift that keeps giving. Um, this is Gauden Schoen by 1979 by the Zabadak Disco Singers, celebrating Jean Janssens of Beveren winning the Golden Shoe, the Belgian Football of the Year Award. Um, uh, his teammate Jean-Marie Faf, uh, regularly mentioned on the podcast, the one of the year before. Beveren were champions that year, they won the cup the previous year. And this is a really good tradition, I think, which uh, we, we should have done here. Play, pe- making a record to celebrate a player being voted Footballer of the Year. If we'd done it here, then Neville Southall could have been the subject of a, of a record in 1985. I don't know what they would have done when Tony Book and Dave Mackay jointly won the 1969 <laughs> Football of the Year award. Maybe they could have had a double A-sided single like Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. One other fact about Jean Janssen is also I should put in, he's one of the few Belgian players of his era to turn down the move to Anderlecht in the early 1970s because he didn't want to give up his job in the docks at Antwerp. (laughs) (laughs) And and the back of the sleeve carries an advert for for the Zabadak Go-Go Key Club, which sounds interesting. Yeah. Touch of the expert dancers there, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Vivacity galore.
And Harry, what's your choice? Um, I've gone for, uh, talking about the European Championships, I've gone for the uh, 1980 Euro Kids goal, um, which was the uh, which was the official theme for the European Championships of 1980, which I read um, was the, the, the West, West Germany won the tournament, but in the West German FA's official account of it, they described the tournament as a hideous disfigurement of football. <laughs> Which is pretty good. Anyway, Euro Kids turn out to be Pippo Caruso and his orchestra, who uh, used to used to be. Um, they were an orchestra that appeared on um, on those sort of uh, those Italian. Saturday night variety shows, which probably you've caught on Rai Uno when you've been abroad, which are usually presented by a young woman who looks like Sophia Loren and a sort of pot-bellied middle-aged man who looks like Seth Blatter and, and possibly is. Anyway, so that's Pippo Caruso. My own choice this time is Wear Back by Wolverhampton Wanderers FC in 1988, which celebrates them winning Division 4 and winning the Sherpa Van Trophy. Sherpa Van Trophy, is he the new lad from Ajax, etc, etc. I'd forgotten about the Sherpa Van Trophy or Associate Members Cup. I'm not sure if we discussed it when we talked about departed tournaments but amazing 80,000 people there to see them beat Burnley in the final and I just thought it was an interesting one to choose given that we're talking about 1986 and the first one Saturday comes because Wolves nearly ceased to exist that year I think it's the worst record <laughs> Now, every month I'm going to chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time I was joined by Tom Reed of Northampton Town's What a Load of Cobblers, a podcast inspired by an old fanzine of the same name. The podcast is available on shows.acast.com slash whataloadofcobblers and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Their Twitter account is at W-A-L-O-C-M. A-G. Tell us about the original fanzine, What a Load of Cobblers. Yeah, it ran from 1987 till 2004, and I remember it. I'm slightly late in that vintage. I started supporting Northampton in 92, and but I remember going down to the county ground, the old defunct ground at Northampton, and seeing um, the fanzine sellers there shouting out, What a Load of Cobblers, Cobblers fanzine. It was always a quid. Never really, it never really went up from that. And I just started buying it because I sort of got into my writing and I was quite an avid reader. And um, but then I sort of cut forward to current times. The fanzine had been out of you know print for a long time, and I just got in contact with the original ed- editor called Deborah Marshall, who started the fanzine back in the eighties, and. 
it's such a really interesting story about how the fanzine came about and how actually important it was. And I just said that we, with this hiatus in football, we should bring it back mainly in a podcast form. So we started a podcast and um, we're hopefully going to bring it back into print. So that sounds, you know, it's really cool, really. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me then about that. You mentioned it was an interesting story, how it got started. It is really rather significant because the Northampton fans started the first ever Supporters Trust back at, um, in 1992 uh, with a guy called Brian Lomax, uh, who sadly passed, but went on to, you know, he's pretty much the founding father of the supporters ownership movement. And a lot of that came about because Deborah Marshall, who was writing the fanzine, she um, was also roped in to do the, the club programme back in those days. And we had a chairman called Michael McRitchie, who has go, gone down in folklore for all the wrong reasons. But Deborah was told by the um, programme printers that they weren't being paid. And she was like, well, this sounds a bit dodgy. So she spoke to Brian Lomax and a couple of other people. And through doing a bit of basic sort of research and stuff, they found out that there was a whole unfolding financial crisis at the football club. She cut a long story short. They started the first ever supporters trust on the back of the fanzine, because without the fanzine, the first supporters trust wouldn't have started. And, you know, there would be no fan ownership movement as we know it. There'd probably be no FC United and Manchester, no AFC Wimbledon, no Exeter, no all these fan-owned clubs and all the fan-owned clubs around the world. So it really is a very interesting story, I think. OK, let's move on to the club itself and your supporting life. Take me back to those early days of going and describe the unique county ground. Yeah, unique is, is one word. Uh, I, I sort of just... just struggle sometimes in terms of thinking whether it was a bit ramshackle a bit of a flea pit or it was actually really really an interesting place because it was shared with the cricket club there's probably a few of your listeners that would have been there um so one side was shared with Northampton cricket and there was just duck boards down one side with no real stand so it was open which is really quite interesting and I think really rather cool because dual purpose stadia with cricket and football is quite a cool concept but um the delivery was fairly ramshackle so we had an old open spy on cop one of the few stands named the spy on cop obviously liverpool's got one um we had uh something called the Meccano stand which was just literally as the name suggests put together with scaffolding that was put up after the bradford fire when the main stand was had to be demolished because it was made out of wood and then there was the hotel end which was the the main home end at northampton home terrace which Looking at photos, it seemed rather small, but when when you were on it, wow, that that place could create mm. a hell of a noise, and it was it was just a very um, authentic ramshackle football ground that football misses now. You know, a lot of colour in that in that ground. And then after various shenanigans, the move to Six Fields. What do you recall of leaving the county ground and going there? I remember it quite vividly actually, because. First, the last game at the county, the old county ground actually wasn't actually the last because Sixfield wasn't ready. So the last one became another last one and uh, it took us a while to leave. But at the time we felt it was right because we were caught up in, you know, the all-seater buzz, you know, all-seater stadiums were all new and swanky and stuff. And it, it, it felt really nice. The local council actually in a very fairly socialist move sold the municipal bus company to pay for six fields which is a really interesting concept that wouldn't have really happened now so it was all bright and brand spanking new and a good capacity about seven thousand. so 
Sixfields was a, a really a new dawn and that was when the trust had part ownership of the football club and funnily enough we got to Wembley two years on the bounce late 90s and it was really good times then so they're, they're fond memories um if you ask me if, I, if I'm still a fan of Sixfields now probably not because that you know newness has worn off, worn off a bit and we've got an out-of-town stadium with not too much atmosphere so and early on I remember reading about an opposition goalkeeper falling into a hole. Is that true? <laughs> I don't know if he fell into a hole, but a hole appeared on the pitch. <laughs> I don't know if that was... I don't think that was actually to do with the fact that it's built on the council tip. Because if you go to Sixfields and you look at the land around, it's very undulating because the waste matter underneath is decomposing. So some of the roads are not straight around Sixfield. But I think that was just a case of... Uh, you know, maybe bad building of the pitch or something. But yeah, that did happen. A hole appeared on the picture. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. Hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. OK, I'll leave it up to you and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine.